Let me introduce to you our speakers for this evening. And um, I ask you to give them a warm welcome. They have um, put a lot of time into this. And I can assure you that the contributions are going to be extremely stimulating. You will find them extremely valuable. And uh, so we should appreciate them. First of all, let me introduce to you the speaker who is standing, sitting to my left, uh, Adnan Rashid. He's a historian, he's a poet, he's an author, a traveler, and a philanthropist. Adnan is a senior researcher and lecturer at the Hidden Institute in London, and a seasoned debater and speaker at events like this. Please welcome him, ladies and gentlemen. Our second speaker is Dr. James White. Now, James is the director of Alpha and Omega Ministries, which is an evangelical reformed Christian organization based in Phoenix, in Arizona. James has authored over 20 books, and again, he's an experienced speaker and has engaged in numerous debates like this. So both speakers are extremely, extremely experienced, and they will do justice, I'm sure, to the debate for this evening. And for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure you do, what the speakers are going to be talking about this evening is the doctrine of the Trinity, man-made or divinely stipulated. I will, in a moment, invite our first speaker to come to the podium. And gentlemen, you will hear from me or see me sitting here. I ask you, please, to respect the time. Um, you have your allotted times to speak. I will give you warning signals when you get to the 10-minute mark and again just before you get to the end of your submissions. And I ask you, bearing in mind that you are working towards a time to begin to conclude your remarks before we get to the end, so we have a timely flow to the end of your submissions. Is that okay? Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Let the debate begin. Our first speaker for this evening, Adnan, if you want to come to the podium, and you have 20 minutes. Before you start the time, just have a couple of words to say. James has been a very good friend for a very long time, and he always presents presents, gifts, every time we have a debate. I don't know if he has one today, but I have a big one for him today. <laughs> This is uh, a book from the 17th century, published in 1689, and it is a paraphrase and annotations upon all the books of the New Testament, the work of Mr. Hemond D.D. So this is a generous gift to Dr. James White for his commitment uh, towards uh, myself and towards our friendship. Thank you, James. <laughs> Thank you very much, Adnan. Your time sets now. Thank you. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. In the name of God, the merciful, the beneficent, I am Adnan Rashid. Many of you are well aware of me. You might have seen some of my debates. You might have seen me at the park. And you might have seen me somewhere uh, shouting and screaming at one of the... Um, protests outside an embassy. I'm also a human rights activist, and I feel that belief always constitutes 
uh, doing good for humanity. Whether people are Christians or Muslims or Jewish, they all deserve justice. I have actively defended um, some persecuted Christians in a country called Pakistan. I come from Pakistan. And there have been cases where some Christians were treated unjustly, and I even stood up for them uh, when it was necessary to do so. Today's debate, ladies and gentlemen, is uh, going to be conducted in a spirit of friendship, in a spirit of uh, a sense of appreciation for each other. Uh, there is no opposition here tonight. Uh, I am not an opponent to James, and James, I hope, is not an opponent to me. Or we are not opposing each other's views. Rather, we're simply trying to um, put our views across. What I'm going to talk about today is my view. And I think the Trinity is definitely man-made. It is not divinely stipulated. This is my view. And James is going to put out his view that the Trinity is definitely divinely stipulated. So I will begin with a presentation of my view. What is the topic tonight? The topic is very technical and very specific. The doctrine of the Trinity man-made or divinely stipulated. Now, the Trinity or a Trinity is not actually the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is very specific, very specifically defined by Christian scholars such as Dr. James White. In his book, he has defined the doctrine as follows. The doctrine of the Trinity is simply that there, are, uh, that there, are, there is one eternal being of God, infinite, indivisible. This one being of God is shared by three co-equal, co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the term stipulated means simply put down, clearly, and if we were to follow the Oxford Dictionary for the word stipulated, it simply states demand or specify typically as part of an agreement. Or uh, there are synonyms such as specify, set down, set out, lay down, set forth, state clearly. So Dr. James White is going to today argue that it is divinely stipulated. This particular doctrine is specifically defined and this particular definition is divinely stipulated. I want Dr. James White to come back tonight and prove to us from the Bible, which he believes to be the word of God, and he is a Christian who believes in a concept called sola scriptura, which means the scripture alone. And he's a Christian who holds on very tight to the scripture. He doesn't want to go out of the scripture. So, I hope Dr. James White tonight will be able to define the doctrine of the Trinity or find this particular definition in the Bible. My view is it is not in the Bible. So is the doctrine of the Trinity divinely stipulated? Is it divinely stipulated? So first of all, we have to see where Dr. James White will go to prove his case. He will go to the Bible. Is the Bible trustworthy is the first point I'm going to address. The Bible, in my view, is, as the word of God, not trustworthy. And this is my view. And this, is, this view is not to offend the Christians. Rather, I have been led to this view after almost 10 years of study. I have studied Christian works. I have studied Muslim works. I have studied Jewish commentaries on the Bible. And I have been led to believe by my studies that 
The Bible as it stands today currently is not what the original authors actually wrote. And we've had a debate in the past on this topic. You may go and watch that debate. It is on YouTube. So can we trust the Bible? Can the text of the Bible be trusted? Was the New Testament written by the authors it claims to have been written by? For example, was the Gospel of Luke, as you find it in your Bibles in this church today, written by him? Was the Gospel of John actually, as you find it in your Bibles today, written by him? Was the Gospel of Mark and Matthew written by him? In the light of all the variant reading, readings in the Greek New Testament, we come to realize that all of the Greek manuscripts, they differ with each other. So the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible states, it is safe to say that there is not one sentence in the New Testament in which the manuscript tradition is wholly uniform. What does that actually mean? So how do the scholars or the Christians get their Bible? Where does it come from? If the manuscripts are all different, but when we pick up a Bible in, in the church today, we read one gospel written by allegedly Mark or Matthew or Luke or John. And there are no differences in that particular text. So what is this dictionary talking about? We go to see as to how the Greek New Testament is built, is constructed. And Bruce Metzger is one of the scholars we refer to in this regard. And in his commentary, a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament, second edition, page 11, he states, Bruce Metzger, who is a world-renowned authority on this particular topic. He states, of the approximately 5,000 Greek manuscripts of all or part of the New Testament that are known today, no two agree exactly in all particulars. Confronted by a mass of conflicting readings, editors must decide which variants deserve to be included in the text and which should be relegated to the apparatus. Here Metzger is saying that it is the editors who decide as to what may, uh, what, what was or what may have been written by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, not the authors themselves because of the differences in the manuscripts. So can we trust the Bible? Can we trust the text of the New Testament? No, we cannot. According to what I have stated tonight, and James is welcome to challenge my view in his rebuttal, or during the Q&A, you can bring it up if you want to take me on that. Even if the Bible was trustworthy, let's assume the Bible is completely trustworthy. For argument's sake, the Old Testament is, at, uh, is as it was given to Moses, for example, or Joshua, or Ezekiel, or Malachi, all the prophets, or Isaiah. What we have is exactly what was revealed to those prophets, although no Christian or Jewish scholar would ever claim that. Listen to me carefully. No Jewish or Christian scholar would ever claim that these books have actually been written by these prophets because we have lost the originals. What we have are the translations. So... Even if the Bible is trustworthy, can the doctrine of the Trinity be found in the Bible? Almost all scholars are unanimous that the doctrine of the Trinity is absolutely absent in the Old Testament. It is not there. William Lane Craig was recently heard saying 
that the doctrine of the Trinity cannot be found in the Old Testament? Can it be found in the New Testament? That's the question we will be addressing in due course. Before I do that, I would like to quote some sources. The Oxford Companion to the Bible, written by Bruce Metzger again, a believing Christian who died a Christian, and James knows about that. He was a believing Christian. And James always asked this question, how can you quote him out of context when he himself believed in the Bible? But I do not quote him out of context because he, although believed in the Bible, also believed that it was corrupted and then it was restored. There is a book written by Bruce Metzger titled, The Text of the New Testament is Corruption, it's reception, corruption, and restoration. So Metzger actually believed that the, the text of the New Testament was definitely corrupted. And we are now in the process of restoring it. Whether it can be restored or not is another question altogether. So he writes in the Oxford Companion to the Bible. And I quote, because the Trinity is such an important part of later Christian doctrine, it is striking that the term does not appear in the New Testament. Likewise, the developed concept of three co-equal partners in the Godhead found in later creedal formulations cannot be clearly detected within the confines of the canon. In other words, Metzger is saying the doctrine of the Trinity as we define it today, as defined by Dr. James White, cannot be found in the Bible. And the New Catholic Encyclopedia explains that the doctrine of the Trinity is a product of history, developed over centuries. And I quote, there is the recognition on the part of exegetes and biblical theologians, including a constantly growing number of Roman Catholics, that one should not speak of Trinitarianism in the New Testament without serious qualification. There is also the closely parallel recognition on the part of the historians of dogma and systematic theologians that when one does speak of an unqualified Trinitarianism, one has moved from the period of Christian origins to say the last quadrant of the fourth century. It was only then that what might be called the definitive Trinitarian dogma, one God is three persons, became thoroughly assimilated into Christian life and thought it was the product of three centuries of doctrinal development. The Catholic Encyclopedia, new, the New Catholic Encyclopedia. <clears throat> now, James might come back and quote the Bible, and he find, may find some passages in the Bible, for example, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 19, where um, the baptismal formula is given go into the nations and baptize the nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But some scholars actually believe that even this particular formula was added later on to the text of Matthew, such as Graham Stanton from the University of Cambridge. Even Paul was not a Trinitarian, according to most Trinitarian scholars. Larry Hurtado, who is a Trinitarian scholar, believes that Paul was, at best, a Binitarian Christian. He was not a Trinitarian by his belief because what we read of Paul in his letters, in his epistles, we do not find any significant mention of the Holy Spirit. We find Paul's dev devotion directed towards the Father and the Son. Whether Paul actually believed that the Son was divine or God is another question altogether. 
But at best, according to Larry Hurtado, Paul was a binitarian Christian. Then where did the doctrine come from? If it's not in the Bible, if it's not in the New Testament, if it is not in the Old Testament, where does it come from? Now you may be disagreeing with me. You may, you may be thinking of passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are so many passages. I have just quoted some of the biggest Christian scholarly sources in the world. Some of the biggest scholars in the world. And those who died Christians. Metzger is one of them. And if you are a Catholic, I'm sure most of you are not. If you're a Catholic, I've just quoted from the New Catholic Encyclopedia. This is what they're saying. So where did the doctrine come from? Uh, come from? We have an individual who was burnt at stake in the year 1553 in Geneva. His name is Michael Savitas, or Miguel Savito, also known as in Spanish. He was a Unitarian um, scholar. He was a reformer. And he argued that if the Protestant church is breaking away from Catholicism, then we might as well break away from the doctrine of the Trinity, which was actually imposed by the Catholic Church upon the followers of other denominations of Christianity, as we will see in due course very quickly. So Savitas argued that the doctrine of, of the Trinity is uh, a blasphemy. And I quote, how much this tradition of Trinity has, alas, alas, being the laughing stock of the Mohammedans, only God knows. The Jews also shrink from giving adherence to this fancy of ours and laugh at our foolishness about the Trinity. And on account of its blasphemies, they do not believe that this is the Messiah promised in their law. And not only the Mohammedans and the Hebrews, but the very beast of the field would make fun of us did they grasp our fantastic notion. For all the workers of the Lord bless the one God. This most burning plague, therefore, was added and superimposed, as it were, on the new gods which have recently come, which our fathers did not worship. And this plague of philosophy was brought upon us by the Greeks. So Savitus, talking in the 16th century, who was burnt at stake um, in Geneva, uh, where Calvin was governing, and James White is amazingly a Calvinist, and I'm sure he condemns the burning of Michael Savitas, which took place in 1553. Savitas believed that it was Greek philosophy which gave us the Trinity, not the Old Testament. The Jews never worshipped a Trinity. They had no conception of uh, a God uh, who consists of three persons. He is one essence, and he has three hypostases. He has three personalities, for example. Or he manifests himself, himself in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The only God the Old Testament knows or the Jews knew was the Father. And, the, and Jesus confirms that even in the New Testament. In the chapter 8 of the Gospel of John, verse 54 or 58, if I'm remember, remembering this correctly, uh, Jesus speaks to a crowd of Jew, Jews. And he says, I do not glorify myself. It is the Father who glorifies me, with capital F. The Father who glorifies me, of whom you say that he is your God, Father. The Jews only worshipped one person. They had no idea of the, the Trinity. And the same Father is talking to the Jews in the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 6. I am the first, I am the last, and there is no one else beside me. Now tell the Jews that there, is, there are two more persons to be added. Why would they believe you? 
if that same father who is one person has spoken to them in the Old Testament, telling them there is no one else beside me, why would the Jews believe the Trinity? So, Savitus believed that it was the Greek philosophy. And was he correct in believing that? That's the question. So we will go to Christopher Stead, another scholar who has, who has written a book titled Philosophy and Christian Antiquity. On page 155 it states, the later history of the Christian doctrine of the Trinity has been constantly re-examined and we cannot enter into the detail of its development. These will be found in histories of Christian doctrine, but we must give some impression of the influence of philosophy on this process. And here we need to consider three representative groups of thinkers. The Christian Platonists from Justin to Eusebius, then Athanasius and the Cappadocian Fathers, and then Augustine and his successors. The first school are much interested in the relationship between God and his Logos, which they interpret with the help of their Platonic studies. This made it natural to bridge the gap between the pure unity of God and the manifold events of the natural world by naming the Logos as its proximate creator and controller. Belief in the Holy Spirit is upheld by church tradition found, founded on the Bible, but failing clear guidance from the philosophers. His origin and function are much less clearly worked out, and sometimes he almost disappears behind the Logos, so that historians of doctrine can speak of a binitarian tendency in the second century. So what Stead is saying that in the second century of Christianity, most Christian church fathers were, if anything, binitarians. They were not Trinitarians. They had no idea about the significance of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Origen speaking in the third century. Leave aside the second century, we have a church father, Origen, who is considered to be uh, a heretic by the Christians today, anachronistically. Amazingly, Christian church formed doctrines later and then condemned early church fathers in the light of those doctrines uh, anachronistically. Anachronism is when you apply a later idea to earlier ages, right? So we had early church fathers. And I put a challenge out to James tonight. And if you can come back and correct me, I, 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 would, I would stand corrected. Thank you. All the Christian church fathers writing in the first three centuries, I am saying all, all of them, all of them, Christian church fathers who gave the Christians the Bible as well as their doctrines were heretics according to your conception of the Trinity today. They did not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity as you believe in it today. All of them, I am saying all of them, Origen, Ignatius, Alex, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Polycarp, uh, Justin, um, uh, Papias of Heropolis, Tertullian, Irenaeus, you name all of them, they believed in different things and according to your conception of the doctrine of the Trinity, they are heretics. How can you accept a doctrine from them when they themselves were heretics? Thank you very much for listening. Dr. White, can I invite you to make your presentations? If I might have a moment, as Adnan did. Um, did you say that book was from 1689? 1689, yes. Do you know what the significance of that is? Well, re I, I know that there was an invasion of Poland by the Ottomans. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm a Reformed Baptist, <laughs> okay. and our confession of faith is called the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. So I found that just absolutely amazing. <laughs> My book is not nearly that old that I want to give to Adnan, but it's written by a tremendous scholar by the name of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, which I think all British folks can appreciate a name like Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. Uh, but uh, I did drag it all the way across the ocean for you. I hope I haven't given it to you before. I've given you a few books before, but thank you very much for your gift, and I hope it's thank useful you. to you as well. Thank you. All right, 20 minutes. Let's be honest, folks. Um, I think this is my 153rd debate. Done this a few times. And I recognize that, for example, amongst the Muslims who have gathered here this evening, there are some of you that are not going to hear a word I have to say. And I know that. And amongst the Christians who have gathered here, there are some of you that are not going to hear a word that Adnan has to say. Now, I can't speak to the Muslims about that, but I can say to my fellow Christians that we should want to listen carefully to what Adnan is saying, if for no other reason than to be able to testify of Jesus Christ with greater clarity and confidence and understanding. I recognize that I come here this evening for two primary groups. For the portion of the audience of you here today who are Christians, who either need encouragement in their faith or who seek enablement in proclaiming the truth to the Muslim people. That's the first group. Secondly, the second group comprises those Muslims here this evening who desire to know, to understand, and to honestly interact with Christians. And my hope is that our conversation will be extremely useful if you fall into one of those two particular categories. And that's the people that I certainly am most focused upon this evening. Now, let's get to the obvious facts. First, it is very easy to identify disagreements and arguments in the early history of any religious movement. I can do that in Islam. You can do that in Christianity. It's easy to point to people in any movement who, for various reasons, were not as clear in their confession of faith as others might be. Um, there are fundamental differences, I would point out, between the histories of the Christian and Muslim faiths, especially in the first few centuries. For example, Islam uh, expanded rapidly in that first century, and, and most of the doctrinal development took place within lands that were controlled by the Islamic Caliphate. Uh, Christianity was a persecuted religion uh, from its very beginning until the peace of the church in AD 313. And so there's a great difference in how the two faiths uh, copied their scriptures. The Romans destroyed manuscripts of the Bible and things like that, whereas manuscripts of the Quran were produced by the government uh, and, and kept by the government. So there's a very major difference in the history of the two faiths uh, that we need to keep in mind. As a result, it's easy to collect quotations that ignore whether a person even had the entirety of scripture, for example, whether they were taught, whether they were stable, uh, where they were seeking to promote themselves. There's all sorts of interesting cult groups that developed in the early history of the church. And we have to be aware of the reality of these things when we start quoting people. Further, the standard cannot be a simplistic one if it is going to address the actual complexities of history and God's dealings with mankind. We can't simply say, well, there was a disagreement over here, and therefore the whole thing's wrong. Uh, every religious movement has had disagreement amongst people. Uh, there were all sorts of disagreements amongst early Muslims as well. So we can't have a simplistic standard uh, in regards to a subject as ours this evening. I believe that God uses men when establishing his truth amongst men. We, believe, we all believe as Muslims and Christians that God used prophets, 
uh, that these prophets have pro proclaimed his truth to the people. Uh, and as a result, what we're going to see in history is that God gives divine revelation and mankind receives that revelation, and then there is the promulgation of that revelation. And yes, there is a studying of that revelation. The gospel went from a very small area in Israel to the entire world. It had to go into a world where you had Greek-speaking individuals. It had to start answering questions being asked by Greek philosophers. When Paul went to Mars Hill, uh, he was asked questions that he would not have been asked in the streets of Jerusalem or even in Caesarea Philippi. And so... The gospel has to be able to answer those broad questions, and they may even have to use terminology in answering those questions that otherwise they would never have had to have used. And that's exactly what we see happening in the development in the early church. Now, I firmly and without hesitation affirm this evening that God has spoken. He spoke to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all of the prophets. And I absolutely believe that God's final word was Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, the final and complete revelation of God to mankind. No Christian can possibly question whether God has spoken. And there are many people, my friends, today who call themselves Christians who do not believe that God has spoken. I don't think too many people would argue with me that I think it's a, it's a basic thing to say that we need to have Jesus' view of Scripture. If you call yourself a Christian... And then think you're wiser than Jesus? That's probably not a wise thing. Why would you call yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, but go, yeah, his view of the Bible is just a little bit too, uh, too old for me. I, I take a more modern view. Why trust him for eternal salvation if you don't trust his view of Scripture? And Jesus had the absolutely highest view of Scripture. It was God speaking. And so, yes, that puts me in a, in a minority today. Uh, but that's a good minority to be in because me plus Jesus is a good enough group to be in, in my opinion. Now, I believe as a Christian in two vital concepts, sola scriptura and tota scriptura. Now, what does that mean? Sola scriptura means the scriptures are the sole infallible rule of faith of the church. There is nothing to be added to the scriptures. We may have subordinate standards, but the ultimate infallible authority of the church must always be the God-breathed scriptures. But I also believe in tota scriptura. That means I can't pick and choose what parts of the Bible I will and will not accept. I have to accept all of God's revelation. I have to allow for him to define what he has revealed to mankind. I don't get to go, well, I sort of like that, but I don't like that. No. Sola Scriptura and Tota Scriptura. Because I refuse to edit God's speaking, I must believe all he has said. I cannot modify it. I cannot edit it to fit my liking, my taste, my predilections. This means I have to believe and accept three fundamental biblical truths. I've defended all these truths in debate before, even with Adnan. Here they are. Number one, there is only one true and eternal God, the creator of all things. I am a convinced, open, unashamed, uncompromised monotheist. I believe there is only one true God. Yahweh is the only true God. There are no other gods. There weren't any gods before him. There will not be any gods after him. There is only one true God. That's the first thing. But when you read the Bible and you read it accurately, you allow it to speak. The second thing that we're taught is the New Testament scriptures plainly identify and distinguish between three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
and that it describes these three persons as supernatural and divine. They're not confused with one another. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. Jesus plainly distinguishes between himself and the Father in John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer. He speaks of a time when he was glorious in the presence of the Father before creation itself was. By the way, those aren't words that a mere prophet would ever say. And so there's a clear distinction. And in John chapter 14, it's the Father and the Son who send the Spirit, who is another comforter. Jesus sends that other comforter to be with his disciples. I will not leave you alone. I will, leave and I will send you another comforter. And so there's this, there is clear teaching of three divine persons, and they are distinguished from one another. But the third thing is, the New Testament teaches the essential equality of these divine persons, not equating them together, not saying they do the exact same things, because the Father has taken one role, the Son has taken another, the Spirit has taken another. They are distinguishable by the roles that they take in the economy of salvation. However, they are all described as Yahweh. They're all described as Yahweh. The Father is described as Yahweh. The Son is identified in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. John chapter 12, verse 41, as Yahweh. The Spirit is the Spirit of Yahweh. The prophetic scriptures that specifically use that divine name are applied to the Father, Son, and Spirit in the New Testament. How can that be? Well, that's why I believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. This was forced upon the church. This was not something where, well, you know, the Greeks are asking us questions, so we need to come up with something. This was forced upon the church by dealing with the entirety of the biblical revelation itself. And when we look at what the Bible says, it tells us there's one God, three divine persons, explains the equality of those persons, and the only way to put that together is the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And so as Adnan quoted my own book, I like being quoted, I appreciate that, that's very good. Within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe that because I believe what the Bible teaches. Now, I wasn't intending to get into a discussion of textual criticism this evening. That's a tremendous field that I would love to get into. But Adad and I already did that, and it's available on YouTube. You can go and watch it. You can listen to it. I'll, I'll respond to some of the things he said. But the simple fact of the matter is, what I'm saying to you this evening is never, ever based upon any one single text of Scripture. And whether you have a King James or an NASB or whatever else it might be, the manuscripts of the New Testament are united in teaching everything that I just said to you without any question. There is absolutely no question to any meaningful textual scholar that this is, in fact, the teaching of the New Testament. So just as God led his people to understand his uniqueness, his ichad, his oneness through various means in ages past, so he led his people to a deeper understanding of Jesus, of who he was with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Obviously, the disciples, the disciples didn't even fully understand Jesus' ministry and Jesus' work as sacrifice upon the cross, even after his resurrection. It took the coming of the Holy Spirit of God into their lives to open their minds, to enlighten their minds. Jesus in Luke chapter 24 had to, had to open their minds to understand the scriptures. There is a spiritual element to understanding God's spoken word and his written word. Now, let's be clear. If God has not spoken in scripture, there is no reason to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. There just isn't. 
I can't give you a single reason. It's, it is a truth of revelation. It's not the result of some philosophical uh, speculation or reflection or anything else. If God has not spoken in Scripture, there's no reason to believe this. But if you believe that God has spoken in Scripture, there really isn't anything else to believe but what the Scriptures actually teach. Now, there weren't many people uh, in the early centuries, weren't, weren't there many people who did not have a full understanding or did not say things exactly like we would say things today? Well, of course there were. Let's, let's look at someone, Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr. Now, by the way, he wasn't given the last name Martyr, uh, you know, during his life. Uh, I came afterwards for some reason. I'm going to name my kid Martyr. You know, that, that really doesn't work overly well. He gave his life. He was, in fact, a martyr. Uh, and it does not seem that Justin had access to the completed canon of Scripture. Uh, he was living less than a century after the days of Paul or John or Luke. So he even had a, a minimal uh, copy of the Scripture. He had the Greek Old Testament, and then he, he had some of the books in the New Testament, but not all. Yet he clearly believed in the deity of Christ. In fact, in his dialogue with Trypho the Jew, he plainly identified Jesus as Yahweh multiple times. Now, remember, this was 175 years before the Council of Nicaea. This was long before, allegedly, you have a council that comes along and forces everyone to believe this thing, which is not, by the way, what the Council of Nicaea did by any stretch of the imagination. Now, was Justin as careful in his language and reasoning as later generations would be? Surely not, nor should we expect him to be. I mean, you have to be careful. If you want to argue that you have to have a perfect standard from the very beginning in how you say things, no religious movement is going to be able to survive that. And we don't have time to be looking at the very early developments within Islam as well and the, the arguments and the, uh, the Asherites and the uh, Metazolites and all the rest of that kind of stuff. We get into all that kind of discussion at another time. But the point is that looking at the scriptures, you had the affirmation Jesus was not merely a prophet. He, every one of them believed that he died upon the cross, that he rose again the third day. That is the most firmly established fact of Jesus' life. And they all believed in this truth of the deity of Christ. One other one that was mentioned by Adnan was Ignatius, Ignatius of Antioch. Half a century before Justin, we have the letters of Ignatius. He wrote a number of letters to various churches on his way to Rome to be martyred, by the way. Let me give you just two quick quotes from him. Ignatius, who is also Theophorus, unto her that hath found mercy in the bountifulness of the Father Most High and of Jesus Christ, his only Son, to the church that is beloved and enlightened through the will of him who willed all things that are, by faith and love towards Jesus Christ our God, even unto her that hath the presidency in the country, the region of the Romans. So he writes to the Romans. And how does he describe Jesus? Well, he clearly distinguishes between Jesus and the Father. He calls Jesus the Father's only son. But he also says, faith and love towards Jesus Christ our God. Now, this is long before Nicaea. This is long before any of that time period, uh, and you have the deity of Christ. Then notice what he says to, in a letter to the Ephesians. There is only one physician of flesh and of spirit, generate and ingenerate, God and man, true life and death, son of Mary and son of God, first passable and then impassable, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now there is an incredibly high Christology. You have the two natures of Christ. You have God and man, true life and death. Once again, his giving of his life as a sacrifice for sins. Son of Mary and son of God. And this is being written around 107, 108 AD. Where did he get this idea? He got this idea because he knew the apostles. 
And he knew what their proclamation was. He knew what their teaching was. In fact, it's fascinating to me that one of the early heresies of the church, before anyone came along and denied the deity of Christ, which is what Islam does, before anyone came along and denied these things, the first heresy was people who denied that there were three divine persons and tried to turn them all into one person so that Jesus is the only God. That was the first heresy that had to be dealt with. That's totally inconsistent with Scripture. But the point is that that was the first idea, the idea of lowering Jesus, especially to the idea of merely a prophet, certainly not something that is a part of the uh, history of the text. Now, very briefly, there were some questions that were raised about, A, whether the New Testament even teaches these, these things. Let me, let me try to make sure you understand something. He said, the Old Testament doesn't reveal this doctrine. When was the doctrine of the Trinity revealed? I say to you, if you have a, you know, m most of us don't have, you know, paper Bibles anymore. But if you have a paper Bible, if you'd open it up to the first chapter of Matthew and the last chapter of Malachi, and if you'll look at the, the, the page, the, the gutter of the, of the pages right there between Malachi and Matthew, that's where it's revealed. And you're going, what do you mean by that? It's real simple. If you know your history, there's 400 years between those two pages. And in fact, the New Testament then, all the events of the New Testament take place before those first words of Matthew are written down. When is the Trinity revealed? It is revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's when it's revealed. Are there prophetic references to it in the Old Testament? Of course there are. Who is the eternal God, the everlasting Father in Isaiah 9? Who is this one who's going forth from a band of old? Who is this one who is, who is prophesied in the Old Testament? Certainly there are the prophetic issues. But there is no revelation of this until the incarnation itself. And that takes place in history. That takes place in time. And so, I'm not going to be looking to the Old Testament to prove something that I believe is revealed in the New. So, what would be the evidence then of the doctrine of the Trinity in the New Testament? Every reference to where Jesus is identified as Yahweh. John chapter 12, verse 41. Who did Isaiah see upon the, th the throne in Isaiah 6? Isaiah said he saw Jehovah. He saw Yahweh. Who does John say he saw? He saw Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews he quotes Psalm 102, 25 through 27, which is about how Jehovah never changes. All of creation will age and grow old. But you never change is the teaching of Psalm 102, 25 through 27. And the writer to the Hebrews takes that very text about the unchanging nature of the creator himself and applies it to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1. Is it any wonder then that Paul writes to Titus and he says, Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Titus 2.13? Is it any wonder that John could begin his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God? Is it any, any shock that when Thomas sees the resurrected Jesus, his answer is to say to Jesus, not to somebody else, and the whole statement is to Jesus... My Lord and my God. And Jesus does not rebuke him. He does not say, oh, don't do that. I'm merely a prophet. He accepts the words of Thomas and identifies them as an act of faith. 
This is why even Paul can take, first, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he can take the great Shema, Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And he expands it in recognition of the revelation that God has made of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. We only have one God, the Father, from whom are all things, we through him. One Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, God, differentiation, it's right there in front of us. It's you cannot understand the New Testament if you do not understand the doctrine of the Trinity. It is forced upon us. And so is it divinely stipulated? As long as you believe God can speak, as long as you have Jesus' view of Scripture, yes, it most definitely is. It is given to us in Scripture, and we have in it the one hope, for with Jesus as our God, we truly have hope in salvation. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, speakers. Um, Adnan, you will have 10 minutes uh, in response to the uh, statements and presentations from Dr. White. Thank you, James. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. James has failed to engage my scholarship. The scholarship I, I presented in my initial statement, James has failed to address the topic in my opinion. My argument was that James must tonight show us the doctrine of the Trinity divinely stipulated in the Bible. The doctrine of the Trinity as defined by himself states the doctrine of the Trinity simply that there, are, there is one eternal being of God. No problem with that. We are all in agreement on that point. There is no dispute. Indivisible, infinite, no problem. This one being of God is shared by three co-equal, co-eternal persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the part, the co-equal, the co-eternal part I am looking for in the Bible. And what James fails to understand, or I don't think he fails to understand, he understands perfectly well. But what he fails to address in many debates is the issue of the Holy Spirit. I am willing to give it to him, no problem. Let's assume that Jesus is also God for argument's sake. Let's assume. Let's assume that we accept that Jesus is also God with capital G. Without any argument, where is the Holy Spirit? When James quoted Justin Martyr, and I don't know how he's a martyr, if he's a, if he's a heretic, whether he's a heretic or not, will be seen in the light of his own writings. What did Justin Martyr say about Jesus Christ? Hear and pay attention, please. I quote Justin, the Logos is God's offspring and child before all creatures God begat. In the beginning, a rational power out of himself, conditioned by and a result of the Father's will. The Logos as existing, existing in the Father as his rationality, and then by an act of will being generated. Logos, who is Jesus Christ, the Word, was generated. This was a heresy known as subordinationism and people who believed that Jesus was actually a generated being, a created being, a begotten being, 
someone lower than God himself. This was the heresy most Christian church fathers were suffering from in the first three centuries, including Clement of Alexandria and Origen. The most learned men in the history of Christianity for the first three centuries were guilty anachronistically of this heresy. Later Catholics who formed their doctrines later on in the fourth century, don't forget the doctrine of the Trinity as defined by James White was established in the year 381 CE in the Council of Constantinople. Even in the Council of Nicaea, 325 CE, the Council of Nicaea, the creed is essentially binitarian. It does not say anything about the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What is the role and significance of the Holy Spirit is not known to Christians to that day. How do I know this? James has tried to paint a very simplistic picture of the church history. Everyone was in harmony. All the people believed in the Trinity. Look how clearly stated the Trinity is in the early writings of Ignatius and others. And that's not the case. If you pick up any history of the doctrine, such as J.N.D. Kelly's, you will come to realize that the picture was far from simplistic. It was very, very complicated. And most Christian church fathers did not believe in the divinity of the Holy Spirit in particular. Now, why do I believe that? And if James was going to attempt to find his own definition of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible, this is a very important point, ladies and gentlemen. You must note that James will try to find his own definition of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible. And I'll tell you why he cannot find it. And that's where the debate is lost. And I'm not going to decide whether the debate is won or lost. You will decide. But some of the major Christian authorities, even Catholics, believed that the divinity of the Holy Spirit is nowhere stated in the Bible. Have you heard of John Henry Newman? Anyone? John Henry Newman, Cardinal John Henry Newman, who was a Catholic cardinal um, alive in the 19th century Britain. And he was one of the leading authorities on Catholicism in the country. Thank you. He states in his discussions and arguments on various subjects, published in 1899, page 114. Thus, for instance, a person who denies the apostolical succession of the ministry because it is not clearly taught in the scripture ought, I conceive, if consistent, to deny the divinity of the Holy Ghost which is nowhere literally stated in scripture. John Henry Newman clearly stating the divinity of the Holy Spirit, the third person who is also considered to be co-equal and co-eternal. I, even if I was to give James the divinity of Jesus Christ, no problem. I don't want to debate that. That's another debate in itself. Was Jesus God? And I am not debating that topic tonight. I am debating a very specific topic. That definition of the doctrine of the Trinity which is in your book, James, I want to see that definition entirely put down, stipulated in the Bible. Can you find me any reference, even a vague one, on the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit that states that the Holy Spirit is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son? Any vague reference, according to some huge major Christian authorities, not that you are not one, Obviously, they disagree with you. So what was Origen saying in the third century? 
John Henry Newman said this in the 19th century. In the 3rd century, Origen is saying the same thing. The apostles related that the Holy Spirit was associated in honor and dignity with the Father and the Son. But in his case, it is not clearly distinguished whether he is to be regarded as generate or ingenerate, or also as a son of God or not. For these are points which have to be inquired into out of sacred scripture according to the best of our ability, and which demand careful investigation. And that this spirit inspired each one of the saints, whether prophets or apostles, and that there was not one spirit in the men of the old dispensation, and another in those who were inspired at the advent of Christ is most clearly taught throughout the churches. In other words, in the middle of the third century, one of the most learned men in the Christian world is saying, we simply do not know what the function and the significance of the Holy Spirit is. In 380, Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the three Cappadocian fathers, the champion of Trinity, or one of the champions of the doctrine of the Trinity, he states in a sermon, and he gave an illuminating picture of the wide variety of views which still held the field in the 4th century on the issue of the Holy Spirit. Some, he reports, consider Holy Spirit to be a force. Others, a creature. Others, God, with capital G. Others making the vagueness of scripture their excuse decline to commit themselves. Of those who acknowledge his deity, some keep it as a pious opinion to themselves. Others proclaim it openly, and yet others seem to postulate three persons possessing deity in different degrees. James had a debate with one of our friends, Bassam Zawadi, whether Islam has misunderstood Christianity or not. That was the topic of the debate. In that debate, James came to the podium and he made a statement. He said that if the salvation of humanity is connected to disbelieving in God or believing in God, then it must be clearly stated. His view is that the doctrine of the Trinity is not clearly defined and stated in the Quran. So his request or demand from Bassam was to produce a statement in the Quran which is clear enough on the doctrine of the Trinity for us to either accept or reject it. I asked the same question. If the doctrine is so important for our salvation, if it's so important for our well-being in the hereafter, James, please come and substantiate your own definition of the doctrine of the Trinity according to the scripture. I want to see some passages on the Holy Spirit where it is clearly stated that the Holy Spirit, if it's a person, is God with capital G, and it is co-eternal, and it is co-equal to God the Father and God the Son. Please avoid preaching. You're an absolutely amazing preacher, no doubt. I give you that much. James White is an absolutely amazing, uh, amazing, eloquent preacher. Avoid preaching about the doctrine of the Trinity. Most Christians here have heard that for years. What we want to know is whether that particular definition you preach from is in the Bible or divinely stipulated or not. Thank you very much. Ah, now the battle is joined, Adnan. For what is fascinating to me is that Adnan and his arguments against the Trinity are significantly more advanced and knowledgeable than the arguments of the Quran. 
And if the Quran is written 600 years after the days of Jesus, even if the Trinity is true or false, leave that aside for the moment. Did God know what the doctrine of the Trinity was in 632 AD? You better believe he did. So how can a person living in the 21st century produce a better argument against the Trinity than the author of the Quran did if the author of the Quran is God? Question you might want to think about. Where is the Holy Spirit described as God? Well, Adnan, I know I've given you my book on the Trinity. And there's a whole chapter on the Holy Spirit. So why didn't you go to that chapter and try to take apart the argumentation? Let's just think about a couple of them briefly. Acts chapter 5. Peter, Ananias, and Sapphira, they've been caught lying to whom? Read it carefully. They're lying to the Holy Spirit. But then when Peter says, you not lied to men, but to whom? To God. Interchangeable. But one of them that a lot of people don't catch, that I think is really important, is in 1 Corinthians. Because there, the Spirit gives the gifts to the body of Christ as what? As he wills. Now here is God giving supernatural gifts to the body of Jesus Christ, and they're given based upon the will, and the term that's used there in the original Greek is never used of an impersonal force, this is clear indication the Holy Spirit is a person, but he wills to give the very gifts of God to the, to the church as he wills. He's sovereign over that matter. Now, what type of sub-creature could possibly be sovereign over these things? Now, did people in the ancient church miss texts like 1 Corinthians and not see the relevance of it? And there might be, he was saying, some people teach this and some people teach that. Let's deal with the text. He says, go to the text. Okay, how about Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20? As soon as I quote that, in his opening statement, Adnan says, well, there are certain people that say that's not in the original manuscripts. Okay, Adnan, show me a single manuscript that substantiates your argument. Just one. I happen to know there are none. I happen to know it's a theory that has no foundation or backing up. And I just asked my Muslim friends, if I didn't like uh, what a certain text, Surah 4171, which basically condemns me to hell, let's say I didn't like that. And I just decide, well, you know what? I'm sure that there are some manuscripts of the Quran somewhere that don't contain that, so let's just not deal with that this evening. How good of an argument is that? It's not a good argument at all. We shouldn't be using that kind of argument. So even when I show you texts where clearly, if you're baptized into the name singular, of three persons that are distinguished from one another, each one of them is described as Yahweh by the New Testament writers. Like I said, you can't understand the New Testament unless you recognize that it's being written after the revelation of the doctrine of the Trinity. Peter was an experiential Trinitarian. He had walked with the Son... He had heard the Father speaking from heaven on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He was an experiential Trinitarian. The New Testament, what, what Adnan just demanded I give is, you need to give me your exact definition in the page of Scripture, as if you can give me your exact definition of Tawhid and the various forms of shirk and rububiyah and names and attributes and everything else in the text of the Quran. You can't. Let's use equal scales this evening on that level. But I want to have the exact definition what I told you in my presentation was, I am forced to my exact, my exact position in that definition by the teaching of the Bible. What are the three foundations? There's only one true God. We won't question that. 
Secondly, there are three persons who are distinguished from one another in the text of the New Testament. There's no confusion between them over against the modalists and people like that. And then the real issue, does the Bible then teach us that each one of those persons is co-equal and co-eternal with the other? Well, if they're each described as Jehovah, if they're each given a role in, for example, in the resurrection of Christ, the writers of the New Testament can easily talk about the Father raising Christ, Christ raising himself, and the Spirit raising Christ. They just can easily move him back and forth. Paul, for example, Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of Christ. Spirit of the Lord, Spirit of Christ. He, does, he doesn't even stumble in, in switching between these terms because the New Testament is being written by Trinitarians. They're not trying to explain it to one another. They're not trying to put forth a creed, though there are a couple places they get close. That's not the purpose of the New Testament. The only way you can make heads or tails out of that book is to recognize that it's being written by Trinitarians. Now, just a couple things that I wanted to get to. Uh, Adnan said that I'm trying to make it look like all the church is in harmony, and this was a simplistic presentation, but I hope you were listening carefully to what I said. That's exactly the opposite of what I said. It's exactly the opposite of the presentation I made. I recognize that there were people in the early church, some which didn't even have all the canon. There were all sorts of false teachers and things like that. I recognize that. We can't have a simplistic standard. I specifically mentioned that. And he mentions Justin Martyr. Well, take what Justin Martyr said then and take his argument that Jesus is Yahweh and try to put them together to figure out what he meant. Don't just take one part. Allow it to speak. Now, very quickly, uh, Adnan said that I had failed. Now, funny thing is, this is my rebuttal period. This is the first chance I get to respond to what he has to say. How could I have failed my opening presentation to respond to a presentation I hadn't yet heard? That's, a little, that's, that's not the first time that Adnan said that. So I'm, I'm going to suggest you, you drop that one in the future. It doesn't really work very well. Um, <laughs> we had the discussion of Bruce Metzger. Again, very, very briefly. briefly. He, he talks about how Bruce Metzger says the New Testament has been corrupted. Now, I've, I've corrected Adnan on this before. And I'll have to do it again. He's got to understand that what that means to New Testament textual critics is that there have been variations in the handwriting of the New Testament. Every book of antiquity has textual variants, including the Quran. I've shown textual variants in the Quran on the screen in debate with Adnan. And therefore, he must know that by Bruce Metzger's definition, guess what else is corrupted? The Quran. All right, so let's, again, this, the Quran itself speaks of equal scales. We have to use the same arguments. We can't use one argument to argue against the New Testament that would destroy our own faith. Use the same standards. I'm really big on this, and I think Adnan will testify that I am really big on this, and I think he's missing it on this particular issue at this point. And so what do we have this evening? If the demand is, well, show me in the New Testament the very words of your definition, I've never claimed that they're there. Not once. No one in this room, I understand you even use my book, The Forgotten Trinity, as a textbook in some of the classes here or something the pastor was saying. You've done some studies on it. You all know I never made the claim, here, this definition is found in such and such a text. What I did state is that if you accept all of Scripture, if you allow all of Scripture to teach, it testifies clearly that there is only one true God, there are three divine persons, and it teaches the equality of those persons. And the only way to understand that is the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. But let me give you one other example. The gospel of Jesus Christ is Trinitarian. 
It cannot be understood as anything other than Trinitarian. What do I mean? Well, the Bible says that the fount of grace, the fount of mercy, is found in the Father himself, Ephesians chapter 1. And yet it then says that the accomplishment of that great act of redemption is not worked out by the Father. He sends the Son who comes voluntarily. He makes himself of no reputation. And he gives his life upon Calvary's tree. But then how is that brought to me? How did that become real to me? I was a sinner dead in my trespasses and sins. And the Bible says it was the Holy Spirit of God who comes and takes out that heart of stone and gives me a heart of flesh, raises me to spiritual life, becomes the arabone, the down payment, where God says, I've begun a good work in this, my child, and I'm going to complete it. I'm going to finish it. That's the Trinitarian gospel. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The only way to understand. Allowing the New Testament, not cutting it up, and I'm afraid that's what we're looking at. Well, I don't like that part, so we throw out Matthew 28, and, and that stuff in John, we throw that out. If you allow it to speak, it presents to us a Trinitarian God and a Trinitarian gospel. And that message is what the world needs to hear, and that's why I'm here in London. And I want you to hear it, I want Adnan to hear it, and I want it to be, to be heard with clarity. Thank you very much. I have a series of questions for the panelists, and I'm going to go through the questions. I hope that they're decipherable. I hope you've written them in very clear handwriting, but I will try my best. I will direct my questions, Adnan, to you first. You have three minutes to respond to the question, and then um, Dr. White, you have a minute in rebuttal, and then I'll go the other way. And we'll do that for a couple of minutes, probably about 35 minutes, and then we'll come back and do a summation, and you do your final speeches, closing speeches, for the debate this evening. Adnan, my first question. Why did Surah 5116 get the wrong Trinitarian formula if it is from Allah? Thank you for that question. Although the question is not directly related to the topic, uh, James raised some points about the Quran whether the Quran got the Trinity right or wrong. Uh, James has debated this topic previously with a number of Muslim uh, um, uh, apologists or scholars or activists, and he has been given clear answers on that point. Uh, the issue of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Quran is a very interesting one. Very quickly, I'll try to summarize my points as quick as possible. Uh, the Quran is not a book on Christian theology. The Quran is not a book on science. The Quran is not a book of history. The Quran is a book that contains verses uh, that, are very, that are very important for human salvation. So Quran makes simple points for people to understand and moves on. There is no mention of Trinity in the verse 116 of the chapter five of the Quran. There's no mention of the Trinity. The Quran simply says, or oh, this is a dialogue taking between God and Jesus. God asks Jesus, did you tell people to worship you and your mother as gods besides Allah? And Jesus responds that I have never said anything like it and you are better aware of the fact that I have never said anything like it or claimed anything like it. Now is the Quran correct in claiming that 
uh, that the Christians or some people worship Jesus and Mary. Of course, of course the Quran is absolutely accurate in this verse. The Quran doesn't say that did you actually preach the doctrine of the Trinity with God the Father, God the Son and Mary as the third person. The Quran is not saying that. The Quran is making a simple statement. Did you actually ask people to worship you and your mother? Do Christians worship Jesus? Of course, they do worship Jesus. In fact, uh, at the expense of uh, God the Father, they worship Jesus. People like uh, James D.G. Dunn, one of uh, the biggest scholars on patristic history, has written on this topic, did early Christians worship Jesus? And he has very interesting points to make. And in this book, in the conclusion, he states that the Christians today are effectively guilty of Jesus' oratory. Just like idolatry, they are guilty of Jesus' oratory because the focus of their worship has become Jesus, not God the Father, whom Jesus himself worshipped. So the Quran is making that point, number one. Number two, Mary, was she ever worshipped by Christians? She is worshipped to this day. The Catholics, in fact, the Council of Chalcedon, 461 CE, regarded Mary as the God-bearer, the one who carries God in her womb. In other words, the mother of God. Catholics have been praying to Mary for the past 1,700 years. And the Quran is addressing those people. And when the Quran talks about the Trinity in chapter 471, it simply says, do not say three. Now, God understands that, that Christians have understood the Trinity differently in different times and different places. This is the debate tonight. The Christians have never had unanimity on the doctrine of the Trinity, especially in the first four centuries. My time is up. Thank you. Well, I only have 60 seconds, so I'll, I'll just address that one particular text. I would invite everyone to read Surah Al-Maidah, Surah 5. Follow it through. Look at, Surah, at, at Ayahs 17 and 18, 70 through 74. Follow the context. And there are numerous warnings to Christians in Surah 5 about how we've been deceived. We've gone astray. Hellfire is, is coming for us. And the only place in the Quran where three are ever mentioned together is Surah 5116. Allah, Mary, and Jesus. It's the only place. So it is not true that even in Roman Catholicism, and I, I believe Roman Catholicism is in great, grave error in its exaltation of Mary, but even Roman Catholicism says she is not a god. So who is being addressed there if that is not the fulfillment of what's in the rest of Surah Tamaida, Surah 5, in regards to a warning to Christians? It seems to me that's exactly what the Quran is actually saying in error. Thank you very much, James. Uh, James, let me just stay there for a moment. My first question to you is this. According to Mark 13, only the Father knows the hour. Why doesn't the Holy Spirit? Oh, I was expecting you to say, why doesn't the Son? Because uh, what the, the text specifically says is in speaking of the establishment of that hour, uh, Jesus says, no man knows. Notice there's, he gives a, a very important teaching here. No man knows, no angel knows, nor does the Son know, but only the Father. So where does he put himself? Above men and angels as the Son. Let's just make sure everyone understands from the Quranic perspective, Jesus could never have said those words. So I'm not sure how you understand that, but it's just something I, I want to point out to you. 
Why doesn't the Spirit know that time? Jesus didn't say that. Because the Scriptures say the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. The Spirit's not being referenced in Mark chapter 13. The question is, why doesn't the Son in His incarnate state know? There are certain divine prerogatives the Son laid aside so He could function as the Messiah. For example, we know that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' natural glory shone through, and He's shown with the light as the Son. Now, can you imagine Jesus trying to fulfill His ministry if He always walked around glowing like the noonday sun? You, you never have to have a, have a light at night, you know, just follow Jesus around because, you know, it, it, you know. Can you imagine how he could have taught or done any of the things that he did if that supernatural power was constantly being dis, uh, illustrated in his existence? No, it was veiled. There were certain things that were veiled. In fact, most scholars believe that there is a, a veiling of many of these things so that Jesus demonstrates for us, becomes the model for us as to how we are to depend upon the Holy Spirit the same way that the Son did. Whatever the reasons are, there are things that Jesus had before the incarnation, he has after the incarnation, but they are voluntarily, remember Philippians 2 says, he made himself of no reputation. Not he was made, but he made himself of no reputation. There are certain things that he does not act upon in the incarnate state, which would include, evidently, knowledge of the specific date of that final hour. Now exactly why that would impact his teaching or ministry or something like that, we're not told. But it is consistent with the biblical teaching that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, that Jesus Christ is the maker of all things, that he would be able to say these words because of the fact that he took on flesh. The word became flesh. There was a veiling of certain things so that he could function in the way that the Father, Son, and Spirit had determined that he would function as the Messiah. Now, that was an absolutely amazing spin on one of the verses of the Bible. That's my opinion. Jesus is simply denying his divinity here. And this is how most of the early church fathers, the reason why I keep going back to the early church fathers is because they're the ones who gave you the Bible. They're the ones who gave you the understanding of the Bible. And they're the ones who gave you, in the case of the Catholics, the Trinity. You have to defend the doctrine of the Trinity today because the Catholics gave it to you. Because Theodosius I, in the late 4th century, imposed it on the Christian world. We have references from major Christian authorities that the majority of Christians in the 4th century were actually Unitarians. They believed that Father was greater than Jesus. Why? Because of the Bible, where Jesus said, the Father is greater than I. Here in this verse, he's simply saying, no one knows of the hour. Not even the angels, not even the Son with capital S, who is God. He's simply saying, I have no knowledge of the hour. Now, the Christians have to argue that way, the way James argued. Jesus has to jump into God picture or God body, and then he has to jump out of the God body when some biblical passages cannot be explained. For example, Father is greater than I, or... The Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 3. Father is the only true God. In the Greek language, monos, alitinos, which means... Thank you, thank you. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. 
if you, Adnan, do you, do you want to stay, stand at the podium for, for your next question? And this one is a mouthful. The Quran was gathered by the fourth caliph, Othman bin Affan, who himself burnt six different Qurans and left only one, which has no movement, Kufi style. And the one you have today is different. Can you prove the Quran is not corrupted? And you have three minutes. Very good question. Absolutely amazing question. And I've addressed this question a number of times. You can watch many of my videos on YouTube addressing this question. If you want to give me 10 minutes to address this question, I will gladly answer the question. But this is not related to the topic. Can you move to the next question, please? So I will not address any questions, whether they are about my age or my um, size of my chest or size of my bicep. You know, because they're not, I can, I can describe myself amazingly. Uh, I can do it. do you want to respond to this one? Yes, please. Can you respond, please, to uh, the verses presented by James, which show the divinity of the Holy Spirit? For example, Acts 5, where people lie to the Holy Spirit, or Matthew 28, or 1 Corinthians. The reason why I didn't engage biblical theology is because it is a field we will never reach a conclusion uh, in. I'll, I'll give you an example. We can actually support anything from the Bible. Now challenge me, bring an idea up, and I will find, find you a verse from the Bible to substantiate that idea. Why did the early church fathers find it so difficult? The most learned men in Christian history, those who knew Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, people like Origen, people like Clement of Alexandria, people like Irenaeus, people like Tertullian, all of these people failed to understand that verse, the way James explained it. Why is that the case, ladies and gentlemen? This is the question I ask. Why would you form a doctrine in the fourth century and then later on defend it and condemn every single early church father who didn't believe in it? Why would you do that? I put out a question and James hasn't actually answered the question. I again state almost 99% of the early, to be safe, to be safe. Maybe he might pull out one of the, those guys from somewhere. 99% of the early church fathers in the first three centuries are all heretics according to your understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity because they did not believe in what you believe in today. You only believe in what you believe in today is because in the fourth century, in the year 381, some bishops got together in Constantinople and they added the Holy Trinity into the Creed of Nicaea. When you read the Creed of Nicaea from 321, or sorry, 325 CE, it simply states, Father who is God, Son who is God, and they are of the same substance, and they are both equal, co-eternal, and it simply states, we believe in the Holy Spirit without explaining what the Holy Spirit is. 325 CE. The Holy Spirit suddenly becomes God in the year 381 CE. Why did the church take so long, or the Catholic Church in particular? Or why did the Trinitarians take so long to reach that conclusion? What was stopping them? Why did they, why did they not understand the passages James will quote and continue to quote in due course? the way he understands them. These are very pressing questions, ladies and gentlemen. You have adopted a doctrine without actually knowing the background. 
I'm not saying all of you are like that. Of course, there are people who study, who are well aware of the church history and the history of the doctrine. Pick up any book on the history of the church doctrine or the Christian doctrine, and I recommend one of them is J.N.D. Kelly, the history of the early church, early Christian doctrine. You will see all these things I'm stating in that book. You simply cannot deny these facts. I want James to come back and explain why did the early church fathers in the first three century find it difficult to believe that the Holy Ghost is God. Thank you. Well, we, uh, in one minute, we had a lot of assertions made. We didn't have a single citation made. I was reading from Ignatius. I read from Justin Martyr. Uh, but we haven't had any citations. We were just told that they all knew Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. That's false. There are only two early church fathers that we know of that were actually functional in both Greek and Hebrew, Origen and Jerome. Uh, the rest of them did not. So it, it, it's, just, it's just false. Didn't cite a single source saying 99% of them. Uh, that's just simply not true. I, I, and how can I respond to just vague accusations when you're just making it? How about giving us some specifics? Was Ignatius? Uh, what, what exactly do you mean here? And when he says, well, they didn't interpret those texts the way that I did. How do you know that? You've actually studied the entire patristic corpus as to how they interpret 1 Corinthians 12, Acts 5, and Matthew chapter 28. I sort of doubt that. Uh, the reality is that the New Testament does identify the Holy Spirit as God. It's right there in the text. We saw it. James, moving, moving swiftly to your, to your next question. Adnan made the claim that all the early church fathers would be considered heretics by today's standards on the basis that they only accepted two of three persons in the Trinity. Who is the earliest church father to clearly affirm the Holy Spirit as God? Ignatius. Um, well, it depends on how you order things. We, you know, most of these books do not have dates stamped on them. Uh, like a library book or something like that. Oh, I just realized some of you are so young, you don't remember what a library book looked like. Um, <laughs> it used to be when we'd take things out, they'd stamp a date when you're supposed to take it back. And it's, uh, that was in the old days. We were fighting dinosaurs and things like that. But anyway, uh, was the Didache and Clement and Ignatius, what's the ordering of, of these individuals? Um, there was uh, the uh, fellow that we call the, the disciple who, who wrote... Uh, a, a little piece, he's, he's anonymous, we're not sure exactly where to put him in there. So it's not, it's, we're not exactly certain the exact dates of some of these things. We know Ignatius dies in 107 or 108, so he's very, very early. And Ignatius specifically uses Trinitarian language when he speaks of the Father, the Son. In fact, in describing the Gospel, he describes the Holy, the Holy Spirit as the rope that raises the cross. It's just, like I said, I, I, I quoted to you high Christology. On his part. So you either have to argue that Ignatius was, was completely out to lunch, or what you just heard, and that is 99% of them were subordinationists. Think about this for a minute. Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. The church has been persecuted for the past 60 years, between 250 and 313. There are people who are attending the Council of Nicaea missing limbs because they would not deny who Jesus Christ was. And are you telling me that Constantine comes in and he says, you know what? I think we ought to do this deity of Christ thing. And these people who had refused to bow to Rome only 12 years earlier and lost limbs all went, okay, we'll do it your way. I don't think so. 
You want to tell me that all those bishops signed the Nicene Creed and they had never thought of this idea of Jesus being truly and fully God before? That is a wildly outlandish reading of any of church history. It's wildly outlandish. And Athanasius, when he defends the Council of Nicaea, does so by direct reference to those who had come before him. So this idea is just simply, it's, it's outlandish. Now, Arianism does resurge after the Council of Nicaea. You know why? Politics. Politics. But it can't sustain itself, and it eventually collapses. And so we have a wild reading of church history here that goes, just, just go ahead and read J.N.D. Kelly. Go ahead and read the books he's referring to. If you read them fairly, I use them as textbooks when I teach church history. If you read them fairly, you'll discover they're not communicating the things that you're being told. My study of the church history is not wild by any standard. If you're calling J.N.D. Kelly's study of history wild or Stewart G. Hall's study wild or any other person who has written on early church history wild, then it's a problem with them. They are the ones who are wild, not me. Stewart G. Hall, in his book Doctrine and Practice in the Early Church, states on hundred page 158. The classic idea of the co-substantial trinity obviously entails the deity of the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully, ladies and gentlemen. Of the same substance as father and son. This was apparently an advance on what had been defined before, even at Nicaea, and was recognized as, in a sense, a development of doctrine. But it was necessary to persuade many who felt it went too far. Eustathius of Sebaste, an early friend of Basil and associate in his monastic enterprise, was metropolitan of the neighboring province, but he was a leader, perhaps the leader of the uh, Numatomaki, uh, which is a group of people who believed in, uh, uh, they had a doctrine on the Holy Spirit, and Basil tried hard to contain... We've got to the end of your, your, your minutes. Uh, let me move swiftly on to okay. your next question, whilst okay. I have the podium. In your opening statement, you stated that Paul is not a Trinitarian. Can you give us one reference from Paul's teaching that he is not a Trinitarian? I did not say that. I quoted a Trinitarian scholar, Larry Hurtado. James is well aware of the person I'm talking about. Larry Hurtado believed or stated that Paul was binitarian. Okay, based upon the following passages in 1 Timothy 2.5. This is Larry Hattaro, not me. Okay, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. Paul is saying there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So God is one and the man Jesus Christ is the mediator. That's what Paul said. Then Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.13, I give thee charge in the sight of God who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession. Paul is clearly making a distinction between God with capital G 
and Jesus Christ, whatever he was. Whatever Jesus was, Paul is making distinction between the two. For that reason, Larry Hurtado, he states, scholars recognize that the reverence for Christ reflected in Paul's letters amounts to a notable pattern of beliefs and devotional practices for which we have no real parallel in Roman era Jewish tradition. Some scholars conclude that we can speak of a novel binitarian devotional pattern evident in the Pauline letters. Christ included with God as a recipient of devotion in early Christian circles, albeit Christ always functionally subordinate to God the Father. This is what Larry Hurtado is saying, who is a Trinitarian scholar himself. Uh, so this is not me saying, um, this is why I insist that James has tonight failed to engage my scholarship. I am quoting authorities. I'm not relying on, I'm not saying because they're authorities, they're right. No, I'm saying these are the dominant views among historians who deal with these topics that the early church fathers had these beliefs and they had no similarity with the belief of James uh, or his definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. The reason why I keep insisting 99% of them did not agree with your conception of the Trinity is because that is the case. If, and if I'm wrong, James actually struggled to quote an early church father who actually clearly stated the Holy Spirit is God with capital G. Please quote Ignatius and tell us where he said the Holy Spirit. And even if Ignatius said that, let's, let's assume Ignatius said it. Is Ignatius the only one? Where does Clement of Alexandria go? Where does Irenaeus go? Where does Tertullian go? What happens to people like, um, um, uh, you know, um, there are other church fathers like, I forgot the names now of them, you know, there are so many names. Polycarp, for example, okay? Justin, Martyr, what did he say about the Holy Spirit and its status? All of these church fathers in the first th three centuries, can you bring me one clear, explicit statement where the church father said the Holy Ghost is actually God and it's co-equal? Thank you. Well, isn't it interesting that even when we find the texts in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is specifically identified as God, those are dismissed. Something tells me then that when I quote Ignatius, that gets dismissed too. There seems to be a filter going on here. Now, there is, from the very start of my presentation, what did I say? Why am I a Trinitarian? Because I have the highest view of Scripture. If you don't have the highest view of Scripture, you're not going to be a Trinitarian. Now, there are scholars who try to approach the New Testament from a merely historical perspective and do not, are not therefore concerned about the consistency of their interpretation of that text, and they come up with some pretty interesting statements. May I point out the parallel to you Muslims, to those scholars? They're called Orientalists. They're the guys that take the Quran apart that you don't really like very much. You reject them. Are you consistent in then using their counterparts when they argue against Orthodox Christianity? That's the question. See, mine goes off so I know when I'm supposed to stop. Right? <laughs> someday I'm, someday I'm, I'm going I'm to buy a timer for Adnan, and uh, I'm just going to glue it right up here so you can't get away from it. So. James, do you want to take your next question? Um, you say that we have to read the Bible accurately. Do the scriptures themselves tell us how to treat them accurately, or do we need to rely on a non-biblical hermeneutical authority to read them accurately? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's a very, very good question. When you read a letter 
most of us who are parents recognize that when we had teenagers, we could leave them a note as we left in the morning for work that said, clean your room and then we will go have pizza this evening. And as a teenager, they develop this hermeneutical methodology where the letter becomes, go to pizza this evening. <laughs> right? Now, when they didn't clean their room, we didn't exactly feel respected as parents when we got home because they still expected to get the pizza. And they weren't showing respect for us because our letter was actually not overly difficult to understand. And when we handle written documents, our goal is to understand what the author actually intended to communicate. So we recognize there are different kinds of literature in the Bible. And if the questioner is asking, well, is there a manual somewhere in the Bible itself about how to interpret the Bible? No, there isn't. But we do have, for example, the New Testament writers interpreting Old Testament texts. So, for example, in the sermons in the book of Acts, you have Old Testament texts being cited. And we get an idea, for example, of what Jesus taught the disciples after his ascension when he ministers the disciples and shows them how the, the scriptures from Moses all the way through had testified of him. We are given an example in the teaching and preaching of how to accurately handle the word of God. But the main reason that we want to accurately handle the word of God is because we want to honor God. If I want, if, if have you written a book yet? Yes? You should well, read my book. Well, what's, why haven't you given it to me? <laughs> it's, it's, not in a, it's, not hard, it's not a hard copy yet. Oh, it's, there's not a hard it's, copy yet. It's, well, on, it's online. Oh, it's online. Okay. Well, if I read Adnan's book, I want to understand what Adnan communicated. So I am going to consider who he was, what his language is, what his background is, what his beliefs are. I'm going to interpret him in that context. I'm not going to interpret him as if he is actually a Japanese sushi salesman. Okay? Why? Because I want to know what Adnan's actually saying. And so we use sound hermeneutic methodology. And I even try to do this with the Quran, though the Quran's much more difficult to do this with than the New Testament is because of the lack of background in many texts. But I want to do this so that I can show honor to the one who gave me those scriptures. And so I think God can speak. He knows how to communicate with us. Jesus held men accountable for what the Word of God said. Therefore, it can be understood and it can be obeyed if we follow Jesus' example. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, James. Hermeneutics are a very interesting area and we must study it carefully and understand why the early church fathers for the first three centuries did not understand the doctrine of the Trinity as you understand it. Because they had a lot of time, a lot of writings, and almost every single of them commented on the Holy Spirit. Not one of them said it is God. In fact, they shivered before saying such things. Because they knew they cannot find any, any verse in the Bible. I quoted John Henry Newman. You may say he's a Catholic, we don't, you know, fine, who cares what he says. But he was a giant of Christian theology from a Catholic perspective in the 19th century. To this day, people admire his books. John Henry Newman, right? He stated clearly, explicitly, that there is no passage in the Bible 
that clearly states that the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit is God. So hermeneutics, when we talk about hermeneutics, let's go to the early church fathers. Some of them actually started to change the scripture in order to substantiate their view on the doctrine of the Trinity. August, Saint Augustine is one of them. When he commented on the Gospel of John, been, my time is up again. Adnan, your, your next question. I think we have time for just one more question, gentlemen. So I will take this last question. Um, Adnan, you say the Bible is not trustworthy because allegedly there is no uniformity amongst the early manuscripts. Then using similar criteria, how can you claim the Quran is trustworthy even though the earliest manuscripts date at best from the 8th century and there is no uniformity amongst them? Three Although minutes. this is my favorite question and I would love to deliver a lecture for three hours on this topic, uh, but I want to be consistent. I rejected a question earlier because it was not related to the topic. Can we pass this one as well, please? Do you want me to address it? Do you want me to address it? Okay, okay, I'll address it. If, 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 <laughs> okay. I want to go home alive. So I'll address the question. My time, so the question was, I use a criteria to criticize the Bible. Why don't I use the same criteria to criticize the Quran? Okay. To answer this question in simple terms, you must watch uh, both our debates, myself, James. Uh, myself and James debated both these topics and they can be found on, um, on, online. And right now, I would say that both documents are completely different documents as, as James already stated. The history of the New Testament is very unique and the history of the Quran is very unique. We simply cannot apply the same standard not that we don't apply the same standard on the Quran. For example, if I find variant readings in the, in, in, in the New Testament, let's find that problem in the Quran. Or for example, if there's an entirely added chunk in the Bible which you read today as the word of God, can we find a chunk added into the Quran by any other person, for example? Let me give an example. The Gospel of John chapter 7, verse 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. An entire chunk known as Parocope Adultery. James is well aware of that. He has already acknowledged in a previous debate that this passage was actually not written by John. Pick up any Bible in this church, open the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 53, you will find the passage there in your Bible. James believes that this was not written by John, and if it wasn't written by John, it wasn't inspired by God, because it was John who was inspired by God. My time is nearly up again, nearly, okay? <laughs> So let's apply the same standard to the Quran. Can we find any added chunks in the Quran? Please present your evidence. Give me a manuscript where you find a verse added into the Quran and prove it that it is a later edition. I'll give you another example. The Gospel of John, sorry, the first epistle of John, chapter 5, verse 7. Johannin comma. The only verse that allegedly substantiated the doctrine of the Trinity, very relevant verse to our discussion today, added later on. All Christian authorities on textual criticism are unanimous, it was a later edition. It was not written by John. I apply the same criteria to the Quran, same standard. Find me a verse in the Quran that was added by someone else. I will throw the entire Quran away. Happy?
Habi? Well, let's get the baptistry filled up. Um, <clears throat> I really wish I had some way of, uh, of, of showing this to you. Uh, I can only do this, unfortunately. This is the material that I presented in a debate with Yusuf Ismail in South Africa. And I showed this in our debate with Adnan. So go ahead and look at this from, uh, it's, it's the uh, 328, the stub. There are textual variants. There's a textual variant right here in this very early manuscript of the Quran. And then later on, I show a picture of the stub where a page has been removed from the manuscript and another page has been put in. And you can tell they've squished the material on so that it fits so they're replacing what had been in the original manuscript. All right? We have so many manuscripts in the New Testament that we know about the pericope adultery. But we don't have as many manuscripts about the Quran to be able to identify these very early issues. I can't get into it right now, and I ran out of time for the first time this evening, but he went so far over, I'm going to finish his point. <laughs> and he's not going to complain about it either. The state of study of the early text of the Quran is still in its infancy. We need to be careful about what we say. <laughs> but I think Adnan really needs to hear me say here, he needs to be more careful in the assertions he makes about the New Testament in light of the state of James, the text thank of you the very Quran. much. <laughs> there are, there are uh, very, very many more Stimulating, exciting questions, but, but we've run out of time and we must move on to your closing submissions. Can I invite you, James, to uh, take five minutes and uh, present your summary of your arguments this evening? Five minutes may seem like a long time to you, but when you're up here, it's not a long time at all. First of all, thank you very, very much for your attendance this evening. Wonderful attendance. Thank you to everybody at the church here. I know you worked very, very hard. I'm not the easiest person to work with, especially when I'm traveling around the world at the time you're trying to work with me. Thank you, Adnan, for working with us. I think it's been a wonderful evening. Thank you very, very much. I want you to know, I want to say publicly in front of you all, I pray for this man. I consider him a friend. I hope that you all have seen that this evening. We've had very strong disagreement. But I want to model with Adnan how we must disagree. We don't believe the same things. And it's disrespecting to him and to me to pretend that we do. And I will not disrespect you to do that. But we can do it loving one another anyway. And that's what we need to see happening. Okay? One... One factual item I must mention, and let, let me summarize. John Henry Cardinal Newman, oh my. When I heard, when I heard Adnan citing him, I, just, I, I almost verbally participated for a moment. <laughs> I really did, against the rules. John Henry Cardinal Newman was the one who developed what's called the development hypothesis. He had to do so because he knew that the Roman Catholic Church, in defining papal infallibility, was going directly against all of history in the process. And so he developed the idea that, that, that truth is de delivered like an acorn, and then it grows into the great tree over time, and that's why we don't need to have scriptural basis for things such as papal infallibility. The man was trying to defend the indefensible against the teaching of the Bible. Don't cite him against me. 
because I'm going to be going after him just as strongly as anybody else did. He does not believe what I believed. And why am I a Trinitarian? Sola Scriptura, he rejected it. Tota Scriptura, he rejected it. So keep that in mind when you cite someone along those lines. What have we seen this evening, folks? I, I hope we've been clear. I hope you've, you've, you've heard what's been said. It's been said that I have failed to respond to his scholarship. Well, I would love to have some debates with some of the people that he has uh, referenced. I have had debates with some of the people he's referenced, some of the more radical ones. But I would love to have some debates to bring out what is the view of Scripture of someone who can say, well, well, Paul only had this much view. These are critical scholars that have to work within critical scholarship. And it's interesting that I said from the beginning, I'm not trying to fit into that type of mold. I am here this evening as an unapologetic disciple of Jesus Christ that believes that God has spoken I believe that I am under his authority. I bow to his lordship. And he held all men accountable to the word of God as if God had spoken it directly to them. Remember Matthew 22? Remember what he said to the, to the Sadducees? Have you not read what God spoke to you saying? Think about what he said. Have you not read what God spoke to you saying? Normally if you say, have you not read, the next thing is what I wrote. Or did you not hear what I spoke? He said, have you not read what God spoke to you? Then he quoted from words that were written 1,400 years earlier. And he held men accountable to that. That means Jesus believed God had spoken and God had preserved his word. And as a Muslim, you must believe Jesus was a prophet. Was he wrong? Was he wrong? And if he was right, what if you stand before God someday and he says to you, did you not read what I said to you? And then he quotes Titus 2.13, describing Jesus Christ as our great God and Savior. Or he quotes John 20.28, 20, where, where Thomas recognizes that Jesus is his Lord and his God. What if he quotes those texts? What if he takes you to the book of Revelation, and he shows you that picture in Revelation chapter 5, where the lamb is seen standing as if slain, and then at the end of the chapter, what happens? Every created thing in heaven and earth and under the earth and in all the seas, everything that is made worships he who sits upon the throne and the Lamb. What if God holds you accountable the way Jesus held men accountable in that day? The scriptures teach it. The scriptures teach it. If you will simply allow it, no, don't chop it up into pieces. Don't get rid of Matthew 28. Don't, don't question what's being said. there. If you simply listen to what is there, it teaches us the doctrine of the Trinity, one God, three divine persons, the equality of those persons. It's there in front of us, and the question is, what are you going to do with that information? My prayer, my prayer is that God, by his spirit, yes, his lovely Holy Spirit, will testify to everyone here this evening of the truth. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. Adnan, can we have your closing? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for being an amazing audience. This has been a very lively and a healthy debate. I have thoroughly enjoyed this evening. Although we have both disagreed on matters, in some cases, immensely, but we both share one quality, and that quality is that we have deep respect for each other. And I respect Dr. James White. 
I know the man who goes on these cycling trips for hundreds of miles. Uh, I would not even think of doing that. Yeah. And he be listening to the Islamic texts. And uh, I know this because he has told me this. And I don't, I don't want to, uh, you know, I don't want to put him on the spot on this point because I'm sure he doesn't want everyone to know everything about his life. But this man has spent a lot of time studying Islam and engaging with Muslims with respect and honor. And I really, truly respect him for that. So back to our, back to our topic. James has today, in my opinion, failed to substantiate. <laughs> that means you agree with me. James has failed to substantiate his view that the doctrine of the Trinity is divinely stipulated as defined by himself. The doctrine cannot be found in the Bible. It cannot be found in the early church father's writings. I am bravely challenging him again to produce statements from the early church fathers where they clearly stated the Holy Spirit is God. You can find statements and these are very vague statements on Jesus Christ. A lot of them actually believed that Jesus was a subordinate being to God. He was not actually equal to God. And that's why they were called subordinationists. And there were views like Docetism in the early three centuries, uh, rife among Christians. There were others who believed in different things. Different people were writing, uh, reading different texts in different places. And that's why they ended up with different beliefs. So the debate tonight is almost summarized. We have both presented the most powerful arguments we had up our sleeves. And some of the biblical passages can be quoted. Was Jesus a Trinitarian? Did he actually preach the doctrine of the Trinity himself? This is a slander, in my opinion, against Jesus Christ. Let me explain. According to the Bible, you read every single day. In some cases, all of you, maybe. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verse 29, a Jewish man comes to Jesus Christ. He asks him, Master, what is the first commandment? And Jesus, being a Jew, responds to this Jewish man, stating the Shema, which can be found in the book of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 4, the famous Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And he's speaking to a Jewish man. He did not tell him, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Didn't say that. Speaking to a Jewish man who believes in the Father alone. According to Jesus himself, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse, chapter, uh, chapter eight, 8, verse 58, where Jesus is speaking to the crowd of Jews, and he tells them that you believe in the Father of whom you say is your God. I do not glorify myself. It is the Father who glorifies me of whom you say that he is your God. So the Jews only believed in one person, and that was the Father. They never worshipped a trinity. There is no trinity in the Old Testament. And then when Jesus was preaching the same doctrine to the Jewish people, he said to them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, or one Lord. And the Jewish man, if he was a Trinitarian, he would have challenged Jesus. Or if Jesus was a Trinitarian, this was a time for him to tell him, hold on a second, 
you have been believing in one person, one being. Now things have changed. God has revealed himself differently. You must now believe in the Trinity. He didn't do that. Either Jesus himself was deceiving people or what you attribute to him is not true. Thank you very much for listening. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.